Welcome to another episode of Franklin Faith Forum. I'm Pandora Carlucci, and I'm here with Jay Horrigan. Good morning, Jay. How are you? Fantastic, Pandora. How are you today? I actually am fantastic as well. Well, that worked out very well, huh? Perfect. (laughs) Yes. We have a beautiful sunny day, and uh, that's a nice change after the past several weeks. Yeah, we've had a lot of rain. But as they say, we needed it. We did. Yeah, well. We did. My weeds have grown, and my wife wants me out there weeding. Oh. And I'll just write a check. (laughs) (laughs) That's the extent of my yard work, so. I I don't mind weeding. It's instant gratification. Those weeds are gone. It looks great. They're gone if you just close your eyes when you walk by them. (laughs) Well. Well, that is true. But if we open our eyes and look around the table, we have a whole bunch of people in this recording with us. And uh, as usual, we are joined by Rabbi Tom Alpert from Temple Etzhaim, Pastor Jacob Yunker from the Franklin United Methodist Church, and Reverend Doreen Auten from the Franklin Federated Church. And as we usually do, we're going to go around the table and kind of have a check-in with our communities of faith and see what is going on. And uh, this morning, our our first check-in is going to begin with Rabbi Tom. Good morning. Good morning, Shalom. It's wonderful to be here on Franklin Faith Forum. And Jay, I did not know that weeds took checks. That's they really did. very impressive. Thank you. It took me a while <laughs> to figure that out, but they do take them. Good. Yes. <laughs> They, they probably can Venmo, too. <laughs> All right. So, templates high. Um, so, things are—we uh, move into the summer, which is a wonderful, nice, quiet time at the temple, and that's actually lovely. I personally am going to be away for the first two weeks of July in Israel, uh, studying at the Shalom Hartman Institute Rabbinic Torah Seminar. Uh, on the topic of choice and choosing, which would be fascinating. So while I'm gone, and indeed several weeks in general throughout the summer, there will be uh, lay leaders who will be leading services on Friday nights at 7.30. And that's always fascinating because they all bring their own individual perspectives. And I think it's uh, pretty cool for the people to see that. that. As always, our services are available not just in person, Friday nights at 7.30, but on uh, live streaming as well. If you just go to the Temple website uh, and click on the live stream option, you can get it. So uh, those who'd like to see it or to, to you know watch it later can do so. You know, we had a wonderful end of our school year. We had, uh, we had our uh, annual meeting for the temple to close everything out. We had our, we've calendared for next year. Um, and so, and I'm working with our uh, cantor on uh, putting this, this, uh, this afternoon, the day we're recording, I'm working with him to uh, start putting together the uh, High Holy Days, which will be in September. It's interesting the work that goes into that ahead of time. I don't think people realize that at all. In this, in the retail business, we could say this is our Christmas. Okay, yeah. <laughs> there's a difference, but it's uh, it's you know it's it's a lot. Yeah, it is. This is the time when that that's the time when the vast majority of uh, Jews will be in synagogue who might not be there the rest of the year, and so. Um, there's a there's a whole bunch of there's so many special things around it and it right. takes a lot of work to put it together so we're busy good thank you rabbi tom i think there's a lot going on at the temple 
Uh, Summer gives that time for reflection and for planning, but still faith opportunities continue. And as we work around the table, I'm going to ask uh, Reverend Doreen if she would give us an update on the faith community at the Franklin Federated Church. Thank you, Pandora. Yes, I'm happy to do that. I will also have some time off in July. I will only be there two of the five Sundays. Uh, And our organist, our musician, who's wonderful, is taking the whole summer off. So in a way, it frees us from the sanctuary. So the sanctuary can get pretty warm. So when I am there, I'm hoping that we'll be mostly worshiping downstairs in the dining room. And I have started a sermon series called Build Your Own Theology. And so my hope is that it will be a little more interactive. We can set up the chairs in a horseshoe and I can invite people to bring music or songs or poetry or um, images, whatever these big questions call to mind for them. So that's what I, I consider is that I can share the Christian doctrine on various big questions, but also to invite people to reflect on their own about what's important to them. I will also be away at a denominational thing the first two weeks of July. I'm a delegate for the United Church of Christ General Synod, which happens right now every two years, They, although they're considering stretching it out to three and that will be in Indianapolis. So this is my first time as a delegate. I'm really excited to to just be part of this big gathering and uh, wrestling with various resolutions and connecting with new colleagues. So that'll be wonderful. So the church building is actually going to be closed on July 2nd. Or I'll say we're having no in-person worship that day, but we will be uh, putting in a link for a, a pre-recorded service that the United Church of Christ Southern New England Conference has put out about the Holy Spirit and how it moves. So my hope is that people will gather with everyone else on Facebook to watch this streaming, whether at hopefully 10 a.m. so they can even chat with each other, and if not, at some point during the week. And then on June 9th, they'll gather in the kitchen, and rather than having worship, they're going to have breakfast, and the deacons will lead a conversation about what they watched and how that might provoke different thoughts about what's important in worship and different ways of doing things. And and we'll do that again at the end of July and early August where the building will be closed. But in that time, people will be invited to go worship other places and have different experiences and come back the next week for breakfast and conversation about the experiences they had. So I'm looking forward to all of that. Is that... that, Go ahead. ahead. Is that something new for... for your church? Is that something you've done before at other places? The, I find it very interesting. The, the building being closed? Yes. The July 4th holiday, uh, the previous church I served closed. This is my first summer in Franklin with Franklin Federated, so I'm not sure of their traditions. They tell me attendance is often very low, so we'll see how it goes. The breakfast church is something I did start at my previous setting where once a month we gathered to sh- we called it sharing Sunday to share breakfast food and conversation, and there would again be a topic that people could talk about, and it was just a, a great way for people to get to know each other rather than just sitting in the pews hearing me preach. Right? They get to share different ideas, and since I've left, they've continued that tradition. So, um, for those who are listening, you referenced earlier that there would be a link for the pre-recorded service yes. on Facebook. So what would be the uh, point of access to that? Is it under the Franklin Federated Church, or, or um, how would they find it on Facebook? Under the Southern New England Conference of the United Churches Christ, SNEUCC 
website. S-N-E-C-C? S-N-E-U-C-C dot org. And there'll be um, a link for worship, and then from there you can find pre-recorded services. Or you can even just search pre-recorded services. And they have a couple of them uh, around Advent, Lent. And this one was actually for Pentecost, but I thought it was relevant anyways, the way the Holy Spirit moves. So. And you, you said people could access that. Ideally, all similar around 10, but during the week if they wanted to. Right. So we um, live stream our services on Facebook. So I'm going to have our tech deacon post the link on our Facebook page that morning, and then people can access it anytime after that by going to our Facebook page. Perfect. That sounds wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that brings us to um, Pastor Jacob. How are things going at the United Methodist Church? Things are going well. We uh, just wrapped up our annual uh, regional gathering of the United Methodist Church. There are some exciting things uh, that have come out of that. I offered a full kind of synopsis and reflection uh, that you can find on our church's Facebook page as well. But some of the big and exciting things uh, to come out of our annual meeting uh, is there's a massive reshuffling of Methodism right now. And... um, our regional body is looking to reorganize and and capitalize on that. But some of them, uh, so there's making plans for that, but some of the major decisions revolved around the New England Conference's rededication to gender equality and being inclusive of all persons regardless of their sexual orientation. In addition to that, though, um, we also have taken steps toward, the easiest way to describe it is church reparations, where all Historically black congregations in our annual conference will have all of their conference debts erased in Jubilee. And um, and then in addition to that, we also passed beginning the the research to do land restitution to native peoples. So any church properties that are on historically native land, which we all know is all of them, but (laughs) um, but any tribes that are continuing to be in existence if a church closes, the the land will be returned to them or the property sold and the money go to the to the tribe. There's a lot of research to be done, but those are some massive historic moves for the the regional United Methodist Church, so all of New England. Uh, in the local church, we ha- we are slowing down, but we do have a couple of major things I wanted to mention. We are restarting our community cookouts, uh, and those are typically on the last Saturday of each month. So by the time this airs, the next one will be on July 22nd. And then just so you can mark your calendars, the one in August is on August 26th. Uh, We are continuing our summer series, which is Stories of the Faith, where we read through a children's Bible. So people are welcome to continue to come uh, and experience worship uh, on Sundays at 10 a.m. in our sanctuary, but it's also streamed via YouTube so people can find recordings there as well. And then in addition, uh, snippets and cutouts of worship can be found on our church Facebook page. That is a lot going on and a lot of really almost seismic stuff that the New England people, how is that received nationwide? I guess it's the first thing I thought of. Uh, some of it's not received well nationwide. <laughs> I mean, that's I just... Uh, <laughs> uh, the, How does the, it work? Uh, <laughs> the easiest way to explain it is the the regional body of the United Methodist Church is the legal entity. So 
if someone, for instance, were to sue the United Methodist Church, they can't do it. It doesn't exist except via our our joint polity. The actual legal entity is the regional body, and therefore the regional body can can within some bounds set its own rules and resolutions. Uh, and so, for instance, on land restitution and the church reparations, the regional body has the, all the authority to do whatever it wants in regards to that. So in that sense, it's ahead of the game nationwide and hopefully will be maybe a trendsetter in that regard. In terms of equality, gender equality and diversity and uh, inclusion of all persons, that is a brave step for the regional body because that still is not um, fully accepted nationally or even globally within the United Methodist Church. There's hopes that that will change, but that's a whole much longer, that's a much longer conversation than we can talk about right now. Um, it's it's just interesting uh, to me, someone who was brought up Catholic, where you would never hear that. It, you know, it comes from Vatican City or that's it. There are, you know, people have input. So it's just in- interesting. And, and I would say somewhat brave of you folks to be willing to do that. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's no other, it is. There's no other way to yeah. say it. it is. How good uh, for prophetic, you. brave, or in our tradition, you could also one could also say all of our traditions, prophetic. Thank you for sharing all of that with us because it 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 broadens the conversation, it opens doors of knowledge, it makes us be aware of things and look for more information, and it's something that I I think would be nice for us to follow up on at another conversation as to what is what is going on at different uh, in different faith communities at, at that higher level, broader reaching scale. Yeah. And in in terms of my uh, other colleagues at the table, they're actually in the room. Most of the, in some of these cases, Doreen will be at the General Synod uh, and Tom participates in um, the reform movement national gathering as well in ways that I don't. So they, they get the firsthand knowledge for their traditions. Um, but I think that would be a good follow-up when those meetings happen to engage mm-hmm. and discuss. And even, I think, a conversation about uh, different types of polity, right, of church governance, who speaks for the church, who speaks to the church, right? Where, do, where does authority lie in particular traditions? Because there's a lot of variation in the Protestant traditions, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So listeners, you are getting to see behind the curtain how we figure out what our topics are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's Pandora and I are not involved in that discussion, but that's the way it should be. So that's great. That That's awesome. Actually, I think it's a nice segue into our discussion for today. And the topic is, why do rituals matter? And our faith leaders are going to expand upon the word of ritual, because many of us use it, and it might mean something different to each one of us, but what it means to faith communities, and also differentiate between the concept of what is a ritual and what is simply a routine. And that's a significant distinction that they are going to look at and and discuss and help us all to understand in this particular setting. So one of the ways to really begin the conversation is to talk about the key rituals that 
are germane to each particular faith community. And I'm going to ask Pastor Jacob to start the discussion and and inform us and uh, help to educate us and to understand how this works and, and see. I think to start, we should just kind of very quickly say, well, what are we talking about when we talk about a ritual? And I'm going to give just a very bare bones and we can fill it in as we as we discuss. But in a very just bare bones way, first is a, a ritual is something that you do. <laughs> it is an action. And it is an action that provides meaning to something. I mean, I'm talking in massive generalities here. But it's an act that helps one understand the world, understand God, understand something. And then through that act, one is incorporated into a broader community or tradition. So it's, um, it is an act that creates meaning, that puts one into a larger context or community. Now, we can fill in that definition in a whole bunch of ways, but I think that's a general kind of good starting point for us. Within, uh, broadly speaking, the Christian tradition, I think Reverend Dorian and I are going to be pretty consistent on this one, being both from the Protestant wing of Christianity. But I would say the major massive rituals within Christianity revolve around life stages and sustenance. And um, there are way more rituals than this, but baptism, confirmation, and funerary rites are the three life stage rituals. And communion is the ritual that you do perpetually over and over and over to sustain one's um, faith. So I would say those are the four rituals within my my tradition that are kind of the cornerstone. Everything else in some way or another can kind of be adapted from those those four rituals. Yes. <laughs> um, I would add, there's often a ritual around membership to joining a particular church, a particular body of Christ. But yes, the, and there are differences. Some Protestant churches are what we might consider high church, so much more ritualized. Um, I don't know if repetitive is the right word, but but uses the same format of things. And then there's churches that are low church where it's supposedly looser. But uh, And the UCC, United Church of Christ, is considered sort of low ritual church. But people are used to their two or three hymns, prayer of the people, a call and response of worship. So there are certain ritual in saying the Lord's Prayer, of course, every worship. And when the, something goes missing or is different, it makes people very uncomfortable. So again, whether that's routine or ritual, so I, actually that's a good demarcation that high yes. and low church yes. is something that's kind of a jargon that clergy people often use. Mm. Uh, so we've never had this conversation, mm. Doreen. So where would you, where do you think, how would you describe Franklin Federated Church's uh, worship? Is it high church or low church? Low church. And then. Just to be clear, there's not, for all of our listeners, high and low is not like a ranking. Right, right. It's a descriptor. <laughs> right. It's and, a descriptor. Yeah. Thank um, you. And, and the so, previous church I served was was much higher church. For UCC, they were on the high end. There were certain yeah. things that they really needed to have incorporated when I came to Franklin. For instance, robing, yep. right? I usually robe, except in summer when it's too hot and, and Franklin people. Federated people said, we haven't had a pastor robe here in probably 20 years that they, you don't have to do that. I was like, I, I sort of feel more comfortable right now. Yeah. So United Methodism is very interesting. When I served churches in Indiana, they're extremely low church. 
and that's what I was used to when I came to New England. New England leans New England United Methodist lean into their Episcopal roots, which is much more high church. Uh, so for us at the Franklin United Methodist Church, our regular, our kind of ongoing typical Sunday morning is pretty low church. But when it comes to the actual practice of the sacraments for baptism, communion, we are super high church. Uh, use that ritual exactly as it is in our book of worship with and adapted, you know, per the day or whatever. Uh, so we're 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 a mix, but it's all it's always interesting. Each church is different in that regard. Is there? It almost sounds like from someone who is learning all this that you're almost talking guidelines. I don't want to say stricter and less strict guidelines, but you you almost the high church follows more of like you talked about robing, uh, things like that. I would have just assumed that was high, low, middle, every church. I didn't realize, you know, again, being brought up Catholic, they're, they're in robes every week. Go ahead, Rabbi. I, I'm, so I'd like to ask very, very into this, which is from my outsider perspective, my understanding would be that if you have a continuum with Roman Catholics or Orthodox Catholics on the high end, very heavily ritualized uh, service, to Quakers on the low end, very, you know, there is no ritual, whatever you just say, what comes to your mind, essentially, that it's not no ritual, but it's a lot less, that that's the, the spectrum. And so when we think high church, it tends to look more like a Catholic or, or church. Would that be a, a good summary or am I missing a ton of stuff? I think that's, I think that's very fair. I would temper that spectrum just a little bit to say even in low church settings, there's a lot of ritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just not in the rubric like it is in, say, mm-hmm. a higher church. So the higher church rubric is extremely detailed. You shall wear this, and it will be this color. Mm-hmm. And you can do this in this space, but not in that space. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lower church, the, they still have that rubric of ritual, but it's broader. So mm-hmm. say in a Quaker service, we all still gather at the same time, mm-hmm. and we all wait for the Spirit to speak till mm-hmm. someone said, that's still a... There's still a ritual right. there. It's just not nearly as detailed as the other end of the spectrum. Okay. But I do feel we've gotten a little off topic about the, yeah. the purpose of ritual and, and making meaning. And it was interesting. Um, at my previous setting, we were trying to figure out how, why are people leaving in droves and why aren't young people coming? And so there was a very active parishioner with four grown children who were raised in the church and never came to church. So we did a little study group with them. So we did ask them to come in and give us feedback on a service. So even just something as simple as the call to worship, right, where the worship leader plans and, and puts in the program, I'm, you know, the leader's going to say this and you're going to respond with this. And and one of the feedback these this study group had was like, we don't like that. We don't want you to put words in our month, in our mouth. We feel like that's a form of brainwashing. And, um, it struck me that, in a way, this ritual is, right? It's about connecting people more deeply to certain beliefs. And I was like, well, what's wrong with it? I'm not having you say anything bad. You're just saying God is good or we worship, you know. But for them, that felt like, oh, don't, don't try to tell me what to say. So I think in some ways rituals uh, 
interrupt that individualism, which I think is a good thing, but some people really don't like that. And and me, I'm like, please wash my brain, <laughs> you know, <laughs> cleanse these thoughts so that I connect more deeply to, to God and faith. I'd love to follow up on that, but I think giving uh, Tom and avenue in here on low church, high church, and the rituals that are important, we can circle back to that because I think it's a really important Mm -hmm. thing to talk about in terms of ritual. My turn? Okay. (laughs) So, um, interesting general text. I just want to expand a little on the concept of why do we do rituals? And this is from a a book that came out 20-some years ago, and it has five purposes of rituals in it. To shape, express, and maintain relationships. Rituals are designed to bring people together. To make and mark transitions. Where I talked a little about that. To heal from betrayal, trauma, or loss. To voice beliefs and create meanings. And that gets to some of the point of we make these statements because these are our communal beliefs. To honor and celebrate individuals and life generally. So rituals are a chance to bring significant meaning to these moments and to pull them out of the ordinary. I'm going to talk about this more in my closing reflection, but to pull them out of the ordinary stream of time and give them a special significance and figure out how we're going to be able to go forward from them. So in Judaism, boy, we don't have... You know, we don't have a sacramental tradition. There's no one ritual that is sort of more sort of uh, particularly holy than another. But we have tons of rituals. We have a very ritualistic uh, religion. And um, the traditional Jewish understanding from the rabbis is uh, a kind of a, a conversation in uh, fancy terms dialectic between keva and kavana. Keva is the fixed text, the fixed ritual. This is, you know, the, we have a prayer book. These are the words you say, for instance. Kavana is the spirit, the thing that undergirds it. So, you know, you can, within Judaism, lean individually and communally in your different groups of Judaism, lean in one way or the other. That is to say, you can say, these are the uh, texts that we say, this is the way you do it. You don't change those. You know, how you think about it can vary, how you, the, the, the meaning you can bring to it, but you're still saying X words. And Jewish prayers are sort of full of words, especially if you go to, uh, to a, a Orthodox or a synagogue, you will be spending a lot of time with people who appear to be mumbling. And what they're doing is reading a text really, really fast. And in their heads, they're trying to focus on a particular concept while they're saying the words. So, you know, that – so the idea of keva, the fixed text, is, is important. But on the, so too is kavanah, trying to find the meanings, which can also mean in – for instance, in my side and the more liberal side of Judaism, it means – not politically necessarily, but religiously liberal. What it means is that you can um, – there's a prayer that's about such and such. All right, the about such and such is the keva. There has to be a prayer about such and such at this point in the service. But maybe you'll change the words so that it actually speaks more to something that to, – to a way people feel in this day and age and or to a particular poetic approach that, that, that works for people. And there are people who don't 
want changes and want to keep it all the way. And there are people who want these uh, changes and want more and more of them to bring more text in. In Judaism, it meant, for instance, it, it included the shift from uh, the uh, doing everything in Hebrew to doing things in English. And you know, for a while in my part of Judaism and Reform, we we had reduced the Hebrew substantially, and then people felt that they were missing the sense of tradition that that carried through. So we started putting a lot of the Hebrew back in, you know. And the thinking of moving into English is nobody understands the Hebrew, but now we put it in. We've got a translation you can read along. So trying to find that balance is a never-ending quest. In, as to what kinds of rituals we have, we have rituals about the life cycle, we have rituals about the cycle of the year, and then we have the rituals that just continue every week. So all those are part of the, the mix. You know, Reba, you brought up, you know, kind of the rituals that the, I don't want to say they're more important than other rituals, but maybe kind of your key rituals. How about with the other two? What, what do you, Doreen, are there certain key ones versus, you know, I know you have stuff uh, every week, certain rituals. What are the, the more, I, again, I'm not sure, sure I'm using the right words. Yeah, I would say sort of the, the grounding ritual in a low church like ours is, is the communion. And we only do it once a month, usually the first Sunday of the month, um, that that's the main one as a routine. And then the special occasions like baptisms or, or funerals, but the congregation would be most involved in the rituals of communion. Can I, just because I have no knowledge, once a month, communion, what is the thought process? Why is that? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I don't really know. That's the way we've always done it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Which is another part of ritual. Right. Yeah, that's right. Right. Um, I think my guess would be that it's something about setting it apart, so not having it every week to make it special and yet frequent enough to be nourishing and feed people. I don't know if Jacob has any other thoughts on that. That would be the argument. We uh, at the Franklin United Methodist Church do it monthly as well, typically on the first. In Methodism, while the explanation or the rationale that Doreen just gave would be the probably the dominant one for people today, in Methodism, that's actually not why the tradition started of non-weekly communion. Uh, the founder of Methodism insisted that it should be happen every, at least every Sunday, if not more frequently. But he couldn't make that happen in early America because there weren't enough clergy to institute the sacrament on a weekly basis or even on a daily basis. Uh, and so clergy were put in the Methodist tradition on circuits. And those circuits were big enough that the clergy person would typically only be at a church once a month. Uh, and it just kind of, if, if not less frequently, some, in some areas of the country it was quarterly. But now that there are residential clergy, for the most part, uh, and or travel times are not what they used to be, you can, you know, that rationale doesn't hold water anymore. So people will say, well, no, we want to kind of um, honor the sacredness of the moment by doing it less frequently. And I will say I've always advocated for trying to do it month, um, weekly, and it's hard to change once a once a this is a good for this part of the for this conversation. Once a ritual is set, 
or a routine is made, it is hard to change it. Uh, and that goes for once the ritual's established, but also once the ritual's dropped, it's hard to bring it right. back. And it gets to the question frequently, again, of what's the difference between ritual and routine that we talked about? Um, because, and I'd love to actually go and exp- go down this rabbit hole, but I'm not going to. Um, because, uh, but in terms of ritual and routine, look, it's a ritual to, you know, have the service. It's a routine that every week at the uh, Oneg Shabbat, which means the joy of Sabbath, the collation after the service, for um, Stacy to bring her brownies. It is a very good routine, but you know, it, it it doesn't quite rise to the level of ritual. And then the question, but for but then the question is, there are lots of tunes for you know, especially. Well, for, for us, in a uh, what's called a liturgical religious tradition, that is one where uh, we don't just you know say if you where all our prayers are written in the book and you follow through the book and you know there are many tunes to these prayers, right? There are traditional tunes. There are new tunes. Uh, in the nineteen starting in the nineteen sixties, the kids at camp started doing tunes that were heavily influenced by folk music. Before that, there were tunes that were heavily influenced by church music. Before that, there were tunes that were influenced by whatever the surrounding society was. So each time you have new tunes, there are people who say, that's wonderful, this is meaningful to me, and other people who say, what is that noise? And that's not real. And I put all of that under the heading of uh, routine, you know, you can make an argument that it's ritual and then try – you know, the, 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 there aren't any police who were out there uh, telling us exactly where to draw the line. I think it's helpful – I think stepping back and talking about ritual some more and it's impo- just right. kind of that general is important. I subscribe to the belief um, that we human beings – part of what it means to be human is to find meaning in things. And we create these different acts in order to provide – meaning to the world around us Uh, and we do kind of back to the comment you made earlier Doreen about you know is a call to worship or a responsive reading brainwashing and I wouldn't use that term because I think it's a loaded term but I would say the rituals that we perform help us understand the world around us and uh, the words that we use the words that a leader says, the words of the congregation says, is meant to give us new eyes or help us provide meaning in, to the world to the world around us. And that uh, is important because if you don't go through rituals like that, how do you how does one find meaning and how does one become rooted into a community? That being said, you don't have to go to a church to be ritualized. Right. Uh, so uh, for instance, uh, and this may be, uh, in some religious traditions, they might say this might be meddling. Air quotes there. You can't see that on the radio. Uh, this might be meddling. But for instance, you know, what rituals are there in preparation for a Red Sox game? Mm-hmm. What, re- what rituals are there at a Red Sox game? When you sing Sweet Caroline, that's a ritual. Mm-hmm. And it's acclimated. That's something you know you do at a certain time. Uh, and it is a ritual that brings everyone in that stadium 
together. Mm-hmm. It creates a sense of congeniality. Is that a right word? Conviviality. Sure. Collegiality. Collegiality. All those things. We yeah. need we need Jay to break out his dictionary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a ritual, right? There are other. We all perform rituals because we are meaning-making creatures. The question is, are we cognizant of what the ri- ritual is leading us to? Right. Think. We just had high school graduation. High school graduation is a big deal. Think about the years we just had where we didn't have the in-person high school graduation and what that did and how that felt. And could you find, could you get a meaningful ritual when we weren't all getting together, which is how we had assumed the ritual had to work? These, you know, this happens all the time. We are constantly in our changing world, that is to say the world that has existed since it began, in our changing world, we are constantly trying to figure out what's the core of a ritual? What is its? How do you keep it going? What are the rituals that survive? Which ones don't? Which ones can change and adapt? Which ones, if you change, you have lost them? All those are part of that whole structure, which is because, as Pastor Jacob says, we are constantly seeking meaning that works for us in our world. It's it's a it's a pretty big deal that we don't spend a lot of time talking about, and that we don't think about yeah. what is forming the way we think about the world. Mm-hmm. Speaking of a ritual in my tradition through the act of Holy Communion, that is a binding ritual in the sense of it. It really is meant to bring the community together, both the community present. There's a there's a mystical nature to the table in the sense that it brings the body that's gathered at the table together. But it is also a table that exists in other churches. So it's not only bringing the people together in that church, but bringing people together from every church together. That table exists across time, right? So it's there's this mystical element to it, this living into another worldliness. I was trying to think of a maybe a ritual that's not as life-giving, but it's escaping me at the moment uh, as, a, as a counterexample. But there can be rituals that maybe form us into thinking... The world isn't a blessing or the world isn't a place where all are welcome. There are different rituals that we partake in that form us in that in that way. And we should, it would be good for all of us to think about the things that we do and how that's shaping our meaning. The words we use, the acts we take, the performative acts that we take. In Judaism, for example, we have a prayer. Hebrew, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, English, Hear, O Israel, the eternal is our God, the eternal is one. It's, a, it's from Deuteronomy, it's from the Bible, from the Torah. It is celebrated in Jewish traditions in all kinds of different ways. Traditionally, it was said very quietly with your eyes covered as a way of directing yourself inward to think about God and your relationship to God. Reform came around. It was, we called it the watchword of our faith. It became a kind of pledge of allegiance. You stood, you opened your eyes, and you looked around, and you all focused on, this is our statement of what it is to be Jewish. There is one God. God has a connection to us. Those are big deals. Um, It is said... uh, traditionally um, at the moment of death as a kind of statement of faith. It was said by martyrs as they, you know, as they were uh, being executed. 
it has that level of power. It is said in Hebrew generally because that is a ritualistic the language. Even if you don't know any other Hebrew, you probably know that if you're Jewish. And it is said by people who may have no concern, what's, may not believe a word of that text except to say that the, saying it makes them feel Jewish. And so, so those opportunities do exist. And we also, as, as Pastor Jacob was saying, we, there, there are rituals we engage in that um, I can't think of one right off the top of my head either, but there are rituals we engage in that, are, uh, that tend to continue a level of destructiveness. At soccer games, there are, well, there was just an example at the, uh, the U.S.-Mexico soccer game where the, uh, you know, there was a set of chants that are, uh, that are now, that are homophobic. And those are, you know, but there's a ritual of chanting those in a particular time. So dealing with that. Rituals are powerful. They're more powerful than we tend to think. We are very rationalistic people. Oh, that doesn't make sense. They're not... People don't do things based on what makes sense very often. We do things for deeper reasons. Yeah. A ritual that we may think is uh, benign, but it does set a precedent, uh, actually, is um, forcing school children to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Mm. Depending on one's perspective, and I'm mm-hmm. not trying to start a debate, but that is a <laughs> ritual, mm-hmm. and it's intentional that we make school children say it. Mm-hmm. It's an, it, it is a ritual that's been set to promote pride of country, pride of place, etc. Good or bad, good or bad, not a mm-hmm. debate, but that would be a, another mm-hmm. one that we're all very familiar with. Um, so there are patriotic rituals that we do and they're meant to cultivate a certain attitude and a certain understanding whether it's true or not. And I just want to um, talk about the the way that corporate ritual can can then influence individuals to develop their own rituals, right? So grace mm-hmm. at every meal or practice mm-hmm. of meditation nice. or saying a morning prayer. Uh, and when we take those rituals that we've gotten from church and bring them into our home life, I think the spirit spiritual life grows even more. And Absolutely. again, there's other resources that people can mm-hmm. find for personal spiritual rituals. It doesn't have to come from a house of worship, but it's it, we're a good source. Yeah. Yes. And, a, and absolutely those corporate rituals in the secular world impact us. How many times in the car when you hear the word sweet Caroline, do you then say <laughs> yes. bop, bop, bop? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like um, mm-hmm. that's the power of ritual, right? Mm-hmm. Of binding. Yeah, absolutely. The corporate and the individual. What what I've, I have so many takeaways from this conversation is I'm, sh- I'm sure that, that Jay does as well thinking about the meaningfulness of the rituals, thinking that I might participate in rituals that I'm not even aware are, in fact, rituals. Um, As we go through our daily lives, I think all of us will will stop and look at what it is that we are are doing, what we are participating in, what the words mean. And as Pastor Jacob said, there are some rituals— and, and Rabbi Tan spoke to this also, that we need to step back and, and look at that shouldn't, shouldn't be your example of the um, chant at the soccer game. We need to be aware of that is what you are sharing, that these are all around us and they're not limited to the faith community. They're in our day-to-day life. The example of Sweet Caroline and the Pledge of Allegiance, it just, of course, my mind goes to sporting events. 
there are so many. If you sit there and think about it, listening to the three of you talk about rituals, there's so many rituals from the beginning to the end. And even in third and fourth grade youth sports, there's the same thing. There's always the national anthem before a a sporting event. There are the chants, Rabbi, like you said, they're all over the place now. So it's just interesting that I don't I don't know if I would have ever, until we had this conversation, thought of them as rituals, but they absolutely are. And maybe not all, well, I won't get on that, but they're not all good rituals. And not all rituals are good. That was pretty impressive, huh? It was. Did you like that, Pandora? I, 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 I truly Jane. did, Jay. I'm going to go back to sleep then. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, as we always do, we, we bring our uh, time to a close with um, reflection and closing thoughts. And today, uh, Rabbi Tom is going to lead us in this part. So I want to share some readings from a little book by Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, written uh, something like 70 years ago, called The Sabbath. Some of these are specifically Jewish, but I think there are concepts here that expand, and I want to just read some of this to you. He starts, technical civilization is the human conquest of space. It is a triumph frequently achieved by sacrificing an essential ingredient of existence, namely time. In technical civilization, we expend time to gain space, space being here the physical world, right? But time is the heart of existence. The higher goal of spiritual living is not to amass a wealth of information, but to face sacred moments. Then he talks about the importance of of a religion of time aiming at the sanctification of time. Unlike the space-minded person to whom time is unvaried, to whom all hours are alike, the Bible senses the diversified character of time. There are no two hours alike. Every hour is unique and the only one given at the moment, exclusive and endlessly precious. And he says, Judaism teaches us to be attached to holiness and time, to be attached to sacred events, to learn how to consecrate sanctuaries that emerge from the magnificent stream of the year. The Sabbaths are our great cathedral, and our Holy of Holies is a shrine that neither the Romans nor the Germans were able to burn, a shrine that even apostasy cannot easily obliterate the Day of Atonement. The day itself, along with our repentance, atones for our sins. It goes on. Jewish ritual, and I think this applies to all ritual, may be characterized as the art of significant forms in time, as architecture of time. And so my hope is that our rituals will indeed help us create an architecture of time that will make time meaningful and powerful to us in this world. Thank you, Rabbi Tom. That was excellent. It really was. I I especially like the... You had so many wonderful phrases, but I liked every hour is unique. Yeah. It's, it's a lot to, always these have uh, so much to think about, so much to unpack. Thank you very much. It brought our discussion to a very peaceful closure, and we thank you for that. Um, as always, we thank um, Rabbi Tom Alpert, Pastor Jacob Yunker, and Reverend Doreen Auten, our faith leaders at the Franklin Faith Forum. Jay Horgan and I also thank Keith Palmieri, who is our technician, and we thank Pete Fasciano, who's the executive director of Franklin TV and radio, uh, to give us a platform to share Franklin Faith Forum.